Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the rise of fully vaccinated anti-vaxxers, somehow. Mixed messaging on childhood vaccination and a look at the new government throne speech. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. It is great to have you aboard the program today on this momentous occasion. No, I'm not talking about Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, although I, I do wish our American viewers and listeners a happy Thanksgiving. We have discovered yet another variant. I know this one is in South Africa, courtesy of Botswana. The researchers are saying they don't yet know how bad it's going to be. It, it could be nothing. It could be something. We don't know. We won't until we see it pop up in a few other places. I, I don't even know. I lost track in the Greek alphabet of where we are. You'd think it stopped at Delta, but we actually went all the way up to, I think, like Mu and Nu or something like that. Maybe this is Omega. Maybe it's Kappa Alpha Theta. Maybe it's the Sigma Chi variant. I don't know. It's just when you look at the public health press releases, it's just like a nice stroll down sorority or fraternity row in a college town. As I've said, you have to get through the Greek alphabet at least once before the pandemic ends. Those are the rules. I don't make them up. And the never-ending pandemic continues, especially in Australia. We're doing a, we, we did Austria last episode. We're doing Australia today. I don't think they're the same place. They just sound very similar. Although, when I was in Austria a couple of weeks ago, I did see they had an Australian pub, which I probably thought was good to confuse a couple of wayward travelers. In any case, in Australia, which is just permanently locked down, it feels like, especially in some provinces, and some interregional travel in Australia as well, you, you can't can't necessarily as an Australian go across the country because their different districts have their own rules on this. So it, it incredibly locked down and it's an island. So in a lot of cases, citizens are trapped. But then you hear this sort of rhetoric from their overseers. Now, this gentleman is the chief minister of the Northern Territory in Australia. So, uh, for lack of a better term, the premier of this particular region. And his name is Michael Gunner, and he has overseen a very significant vaccine mandate, which doesn't quite go so far as Austria's does to mandate vaccination for everyone, but it comes pretty close because the Northern Territory vaccine mandate basically applies to anyone who has a public facing role. As the government's website says, it is mandatory for workers in certain settings to get the COVID-19 vaccination and show evidence of this to their employer to continue working in the same role. And as far as workers requiring vaccination, they include people who work with children, also people who work in customer-facing roles. So retail, finance, hospitality, veterinarian, beauty, gym. So basically anything you do that involves you interacting with someone will have you forced to get the vaccination. So quite a sweeping vaccine mandate. Now, I have been firmly against vaccine mandates. I believe vaccination is a matter of personal choice. Despite being fully vaccinated, this is my belief. And the reason I share my vaccination status with you is because despite being fully vaccinated, despite having the double Pfizer, to Michael Gunner in Australia, I am an anti-vaxxer. Take a look. There was a time in Parliament where you called people anti-vaxxers because they, who were vaccinated because they had opposition to the mandate. You called 
Federal Senator Malandiri McCarthy, a champion of the vaccine and anti-vaxxer, because it wasn't 100% support of your mandate. I wonder, do you think at all that your rhetoric around calling people anti-vaxxers, some of whom were vaccinated, has had an impact at all on vaccine take-up in parts of the Territory? No. And I'll repeat it. If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. If you support, champion, give a green light, give comfort to, support anybody who argues against the vaccine, you are an anti-vaxxer, absolutely. Your personal vaccination status is utterly irrelevant. If you campaign against the mandate, if you campaign against the people being vaccinated in vulnerable settings, teachers in classrooms, I'll be really clear, at that point in time, people were actually supporting the idea of a teacher being unvaccinated in a remote community classroom with kids who cannot be vaccinated. I reject that, I still reject it. And if you are out there in any way, shape or form campaigning against this mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. If you say pro-persuasion, stuff it, shove it. We are absolutely gonna make sure as many Territorians as possible are vaccinated. That is our best protection against this thing. And if you look at the Doty model that's only come out since, that says we have to double dose 80 in remote communities, five and up, I think you'll see our vaccine mandate is absolutely crucial to protecting lives, particularly Aboriginal lives. And I will never back away from supporting vaccines. And anyone out there who comes for the mandate, you are anti-vax. You may remember a few weeks back, I spoke about Merriam-Webster Dictionary deciding that anyone who was against mandatory vaccination was an anti-vaxxer. And this is why that story was relevant, because this sort of rhetoric and language and ideology creeps into the political realm. So Chief Minister Michael Gunner says it doesn't matter if you're fully vaccinated or not. If you think that your vaccination status has anything to do with being an anti-vaxxer, you're out to lunch. I, I mean, this, this is something that sounds comical. Like, that could be a line right out of some politician from Monty Python. If you think whether you're vaccinated has anything to do with being an anti-vaxxer, I'm like, well, yeah, I, I think it actually has quite a bit to do with it. So if you're pro-civil liberties, if you're pro-personal choice, if you're for individual decision-making with health, you are just a dirty, filthy, stinking anti-vaxxer. Even if you're fully vaccinated. Even if you think the vaccines are God's gift to the world, you support the miracle of modern medicine, you are first in line, you're just an anti-vaxxer if you support choice. This is the realm that they're trying to push people to. And when you look at the Northern Territory vaccine mandate, which goes beyond just people that work for the government, anyone in a public-facing role, what they're actually doing is trying to mandate vaccination population-wide. This is what Canada has done as well. They know they won't have a mandate to make vaccination mandatory a la Austria. So they take any realm of society they can control. And they make vaccination required for that particular function. So working in the public service, working in a federally regulated sector, boarding an airplane or a train. These are the things that the federal government is within its legal mandate to do in Canada, or so it believes anyway. And they get away with it. But what they're actually trying to do is get to 100% vaccination. They just know that they can't get away with showing up on people's doorsteps and shoving the needles in their arms. But that's why I pointed out in the previous show what's happening in Austria is so important because if you don't believe that this could happen in Canada, you are very sorely mistaken. This is something that we see more and more countries pushing the line, pushing the line forward. And the Northern Territory example is this. 
when they're mandating vaccination, again, you look at the sectors on here, basically anyone who works outside of a closed off office or outside of self-employment is covered by this. If you're going to engage in any work with an Aboriginal community, with vulnerable people, with uh, customers, with children, I mean, basically they're trying to cover everything. There are very few jobs that aren't on that list. And I've long said now, this isn't really an original thought by any stretch, that this is all about control more than it is about specific public health guidance. And that, that's why, just as one notable example, the federal government in Canada extended its vaccine mandate even to those who are working from home, who will not come into contact with a single person except for maybe their cat or dog, but certainly not anyone else in the public service, and still at risk of losing their jobs because of vaccination status. And I want to actually turn to the government's doubling down on refusing to pay out EI benefits for people who have been fired or are going to be fired because of not being vaccinated. This is a clip from Power and Politics on CBC with Carla Qualtro, who is the Minister of Employment. And again, not surprising, but still very angering. We had you on this program before the new cabinet was announced, and we asked you then whether those individuals would qualify for employment insurance. You said you were of the view that that would be the case. So I want to follow up. Do people who lose their job because they refuse to meet a vaccine mandate qualify for EI? Well, certainly it's not up to me to determine individual outcomes for individual cases. But as a matter of policy, Katie, if an employer has a policy that requires a vaccine, if a worker does not adhere to that policy and as a result their employment is terminated, they would not qualify for EI. Uh, Now, after we did that interview, we had an employment lawyer, Paul Champ, on the program. Uh, Here's what he said to that. Have a listen. There's no question that an employee can be terminated for it, but can they be denied employment insurance benefits? Uh, I I disagree with the minister. The provisions in the EI Act say that people are disentitled to benefits if they're terminated for misconduct. And I think refusing or declining to get a vaccine in most workplaces is not misconduct. So what do you say to his argument there? Well, I I think this will be tested, Katie, for sure, and it will be tested in court. Um, The advice I've received from justice and justice lawyers is that um, we're on solid ground here, that if you, it would constitute, I guess, misconduct, but certainly I'm not giving a legal opinion here, and we'll have to see how this plays out in the Social Security Tribunal and in the courts. But uh, as a matter of policy, our position is that people would not be eligible. Now, of course, there will be extenuating circumstances, but as a matter of course, in an ineligibility. And I'm glad CBC featured in that package, by the way, and forced the minister to respond to it. The labor lawyer saying, well, well, hang on here. I mean, why are you able to uh, deny them benefits? Benefits into which they have paid. Benefits into which they have paid, as all Canadians do. But the reason is that the government is viewing this as a with-cause termination. They're viewing it as though you basically stole something on the job and you're getting fired immediately without any recourse or any severance. What's missing from this is that the government has changed the definition after these employees started. Now, I'm against the vaccine mandate through and through. I'm going to keep saying it because I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression here, but I'm against it. It's wrong. It's not particularly effective. But if you were to get a job now, when the vaccine mandate is in effect, you're going to have a lot less recourse available to you if you get fired before your termination or your probation period is up because you're not vaccinated. For someone who joined the civil service before this vaccine mandate existed, for the rules of employment to be changed, 
And then for the government to say, we're going to fire you for not doing this thing you never knew you were going to have to do until we just decided it a couple of months ago, and we're not even going to pay you your severance, is unconscionable. But the government does not want to look after these people. The government doesn't want to look after the unvaccinated. The government deplores them. The government deplores people that for whatever reason are making that choice for themselves. They're trying to make it as inconvenient and untenable as possible to live and work and exist in Canadian society as an unvaccinated person so that you will get the jab. That's their goal. That's their goal. They're, they're trying to make it so that you can't go out to restaurants, you can't board a plane. Well, good, because you can't afford to do those things if you're not allowed to work either. And as many stories as we see about labor shortages, people not having the staff available, we still have governments intent on putting these mandates forward that even further shrink the workforce. And I want to say, I do not care what decisions you make for yourself. That's the whole point. We did a segment the other day on libertarianism. And not, a, not that I'm a libertarian party of Canada supporter in the sense that I, I don't have any political party. But you know what? Small L libertarian ideals, I think, would make the world go a long way in the direction it needs to go. So my view on this is make up the decision for yourself. Let businesses decide for themselves what rules they want to have for vaccination status or other things. But when government is making that determination, a government that has locked down industry and prevented people from making money, a government that has locked down people in their own homes effectively by shutting off all the things they could do, and now a government that is hell-bent on closing off as many aspects of the Canadian life as it can to unvaccinated people. And the number of people in this country who because they do not like or agree with or respect the decision of unvaccinated people do not care about their civil liberties is, I don't want to say shocking because I, I think this has been a long time coming, but it's very upsetting. It's very upsetting. All the people who say because, well, I'm vaccinated, so I don't care what happens to them. Well, you should care. You should care because when this becomes an annual thing and you don't want to play ball with it anymore, when the booster shots become mandated and you don't want to get your booster shot, when COVID-21 or COVID-22 or I don't know, COVID-97 come around and, and you don't want to play ball with it and you don't want to do all this stuff anymore, you're going to be the one that is under the boot of government then. Everyone should support the civil liberties of everyone else even if you think that you're safe for the time being, because the nature of civil liberties is that as the whims of government change, so do those in its crosshairs. And if it's not you now, it will be you next. And there's a reason I'm talking about Australia in this show and that I was talking about Austria and Italy and the Netherlands a few days ago, because all of these responses are interconnected. And when government realizes what it can get away with, by looking at the experiences of others. Well, all that does is add another tool to the toolkit. And unless you have a government that believes there is a strong base of support for civil liberties that is going to ground its responses in that, you don't really have the ability to rely on the fact that freedom is going to be there because there's no guarantee of that. The Canadian pandemic response for the last two years has showed us we, there is no base of support for civil liberties. In fact, if you wanted to re reduce it to a majoritarian position, if you were to have a, a true democracy, I think most Canadians, most Canadians would vote for lockdowns. Most Canadians would vote for restricting the rights to the unvaccinated. Most Canadians would vote 
against liberty. Because a lot of them are not paying attention. And more importantly, there are a lot of them are not aware of what precedent that sets for the future. Just look at the flu shot. I've not gotten a flu shot this year. The reason I have is because I have not felt the need to. I, I'm just not. It, it's I've, I'm not against the flu shot. I'm not anti-flu shot. I'm not contrary to the Australian Northern Territory position, an anti-vaxxer. I just haven't felt the need to get it. How long until the flu shot is part of the vaccine passport? How long until lawmakers say, oh, this flu looks to be a bit of a rough one this year? Okay, all of a sudden, if you want to go to a restaurant, you've got to show that you've received your flu shot. And there are some people saying, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, what's the big deal? Why not? But these are the same people who don't care about their right to privacy. The same people who say, well, if you have nothing to hide, you don't need to worry about it. The same people who say, well, a mask isn't that much of an inconvenience, so it's fine. But all of these little things, these things that are perceived to be little, are not actually little at all. When you start talking about putting barriers and roadblocks in place for you to enjoy life as a supposedly free citizen, you are not actually enjoying that life. Freedom is not supposed to be conditional. In fact, freedom is not conditional, except insofar as the condition to not infringe on someone else's freedom or to not infringe on someone else's fundamental rights. But short of that, freedom is unconditional. So there's no such thing as you're free to do what you want, but you have to wear a mask. Or you're free to do what you want if you're vaccinated. Or you're free to do what you want if you provide proof of vaccination. That is not freedom. When you start qualifying it and applying conditions, you've lost sight of what fundamental freedom is. And I'm so sick and tired of people in this country who do not understand or even care about that, who believe that the government is out for them. Government is not. I mean, government is the barrier to freedom. Government is the impediment to freedom. Government is not the body that's going to act, let you access the good life. It's not. And the deference and reliance that we see between Canadians and their government has been the most disheartening through the pandemic. And this is not, again, I mean, there's going to be some people that are saying, are you an anarchist? No, I'm not. I realize that there is a place for the state, but that place is best kept constrained and confined to the things that only government can do. And the social contract between government and citizens is that government agrees to make decisions that allow citizens the opportunity to live their lives, not to live their lives for them or just deny them the right to live their lives altogether. And I know this is a big picture concern. I get that. But if you get so focused on the micro, you lose sight of that big picture. And I fear that's where we are as a country. That's where we are as Western society. And, and that's the trend that allows people to say, well, it's just a mask. It's just a mask. It's fine. You know, I did a, a little poll, and I think I may have talked about this on the show in the past on, on Twitter, not a formal poll by any stretch. I said, I fear that unmasked air travel is never coming back. And I got a lot of response that say, yeah, I agree with you. I'm kind of pessimistic too. And then I got a lot of pushback from that saying, well, well, I mean, if, if that's the cost of reopening, if that's the cost of getting back to normal, then that's fine. And, and I'm, 
I mean, Twitter is not conducive to having substantive or real discussions. So I didn't, you know, get into this, you know, 97 tweet thread or whatever about it. But I, I was thinking, I said, you, you can't actually say that with a straight face and mean it. If wearing a mask is the price of returning to normal, because that is not inherently normal. Covering your face when you're out in public is not inherently normal. Especially at restaurants. You know, this is something that a lot of people fail to understand. Because if you go to a restaurant, you have to wear your mask to go from the front door to the table, and then you sit down and take the mask off, and, and everything's fine. There's no COVID when you're seated, as we remember. It, it all goes above your heads. But the service staff are all wearing masks. The people working in the kitchen are all wearing masks. So, so talk about a classist element of this. That, you know, if you can dine out, you're fully vaccinated, you can sit down and take off your mask and you can talk as much as you want and drink and eat and be merry. But the people serving you, the people serving you, oh, they've got to wear masks. And again, that's just one example of this. And, and again, if they want to, fine. If Some people enjoy wearing a mask. I've had people say, well, you know what? I haven't gotten a cold in the last two years, so I like wearing a mask. Although I would contend that you probably haven't gotten a cold because you haven't been allowed to go anywhere. But nevertheless, if you enjoy it, fine. I, I've been in Vermont since their mask mandate was lifted. I was there, uh, I think, a couple of times. And, and it was great. Basically, no one wore masks. Absolutely no one except for like one or two people, both of them working at Starbucks, incidentally. I don't know what you extract from that as far as the, the demographic of Starbucks employees. And then I went down to Florida a few months back, which had no mask mandate, and I saw a lot of mask wearing. A lot of mask wearing. I, I don't know who or, or why, but a lot of people voluntarily said, okay, I'm wearing a mask even though I don't have to. And, and I thought that was great because everyone in Canada likes to look at Florida as being just this absolute cesspool of, you know, bodies and piles on the streets, climbing over dead bodies to, to go to a business and, you know, clinging to your freedom and all that. But in Florida, it's a good example of what happens if government says, make up your own minds. People just to say, you know what, I'm more comfortable with a mask. I'm going to wear a mask. Some businesses had signs requiring mask wearing, as is their right to do. And we leave people to make their own choices. But if you don't choose something for yourself, whatever it is, you don't actually get the chance to be in control of your own life. And when you have crossed that threshold, when government specifically has crossed that threshold and said, you know what, you no longer have a right to make this decision or that decision, it's walking down a road from which there is no return, which is government making more and more of those very decisions. And at a certain point, what are you even doing? We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. On Tuesday, I mentioned this page on the website for the Niagara region talking about the lack of consent required for vaccination. And they were talking about vaccinating students in school. And the website said, under the Healthcare Consent Act, be advised there is no minimum age to provide consent. This means that your child can consent to be vaccinated without parental consent. Now, that was what they said, and that's still there on their website. Now, this was a, a bit of a flurry of response that this generated online, and Niagara Region had tweeted that this was misinformation. 
The public health unit tweeted Tuesday morning, we've learned of misinformation being shared that children aged 5 to 11 will be vaccinated at school without parent or legal guardian consent. This is not true. Niagara Region Public Health is working closely with families to obtain informed consent to vaccinate children 5 to 11. Clinics will be offered outside of school hours. This is to ensure that parents or legal guardians can be with their children to provide consent and support. Now, there was an email that was sent to parents that one Twitter user pointed out showing that their vaccination clinic was actually scheduled for in-school hours. I think it was 1 to 3 p.m. So I'm not sure if they're saying that outside of school hours is meant to be the exclusive time slot or if it was in addition to other things they're doing in school. But nevertheless, the point that they're making here is that, no, 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 it's misinformation to say that we don't require parental consent. Well, the misinformation came from their own website. And while the website has since been changed, it's still there that their interpretation of the Healthcare Consent Act is that there is no minimum age to consent. Any child can consent to be vaccinated without parental consent. Now, they've amended this with a little disclaimer referring specifically to COVID vaccination. And they say, Niagara Region Public Health requires parental slash guardian consent for children 5 to 11 years of age for the COVID-19 vaccine. So their policy is that they're going to get consent for kids 5 to 11. Okay. But that doesn't change the fact that their overarching view is that they don't need to do that. They're saying they will do it. But they're also saying like half an inch below that, that they don't feel they need to do it. So for them to accuse everyone else of literally quoting their own words of peddling misinformation, and when I pointed it out, I, I deliberately didn't editorialize. I just quoted from their website and said, this is their approach to vaccination. And I even said on the show on Tuesday, I qualified it by saying they might just be talking about, you know, MMR and tetanus and diphtheria and all that. But the whole point is, if this is their view, parents need to be very much alarmed. And, and just interestingly enough, not connected to COVID directly, I saw this cross my screen this morning from the Woodstock Police Service in Ontario. They gave a disclaimer, a PSA of sorts, about consent for children and the importance of consent. And they're talking about sexual autonomy, clearly. They're saying that the Special Victims Unit wants you and your children to know about consent. It should never be assumed or implied. Uh, consent is not silence or the absence of no. It can't be given if you're impaired or unconscious and can never be obtained through threats or coercion. Now, I'm not imputing motive here. I don't think someone at Woodstock was trying to subtweet about COVID secretly by talking about uh, sexual consent. But it did strike me as odd, the mixed messaging that we see on, on so many different things. We talk about the importance of consent, true, honest, bona fide consent, not acquired through coercion or even persuasion in one sense. And then in the other sense, it's get the jab or else. We talk about my body, my choice in some contexts. And then, well, not when it comes to vaccination. And it's amazing that all of these sacred cows that have been lifted up by the left as things that we need to adhere to in any number of other areas of society are absolutely slaughtered when they get in the way of the narrative that governments are championing with regard to COVID. We've got to take a quick break when we come back. More of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So I know I depressed you all so much in that first segment of the program talking about civil liberties. I I don't know if this will be much more of a pick-me-up, but nevertheless, sometimes we all need the hard truths to survive and to find the appropriate remedies to all of these problems we identify. Although, again, optimism is just generally in in short supply as of late. want to talk about the throne speech this week. Franco Terrazano, federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joins me now. Now, obviously, this is the throne speech for a government that's been re-elected and just ran a, an election campaign. So not a, not a lot of surprises, but at the same time, also not a lot of good news if you're a taxpayer who cares about things like, oh, I don't know, balanced budget, managing the debt, <laughs> fiscal restraint, all of these things, right? Well, you know, from this throne speech, sometimes what tells you the most is what isn't said. And we didn't hear a single mention of the deficit or the debt. Now we understand that there's many priorities that many governments have right now, but a key priority for this federal government has to be the debt and deficit because we have seen a massive amount of government borrowing. The federal debt is now more than a trillion dollars, which means that each Canadian is on the hook for about $30,000 in federal government debt alone. And Andrew, I don't know too many Canadians right now that have tens of thousands of dollars lying around to pay their politicians' credit card bills. So it's unfortunate that we didn't hear this government really take this deficit problem seriously. Yeah, and the problem with that is that it's something that only gets more more and more expensive the less you deal with it. And, and that's the big problem. And, and even if you want to appeal to deficit uh, problems and debt problems to people that are on the political left and, and tend to like big government spending, well, the more you're spending on, on maintaining and, and managing your debt, the less you're actually able to spend on services. Well, interest charges, right? Just interest charges on the government debt alone eat away money, as you mentioned, that could be going to healthcare, could be going to fixing roads and stuff of that nature. We've talked about this before, but under the current trajectory, we wouldn't see a balanced budget until 2070. And if that were to happen, Andrew, uh, we would lose out on $3.8 trillion just in debt interest charges over those five decades, which is a staggering amount of money. So if you want to see better healthcare, you should be worried about the money that we're losing to debt interest charges. But one more thing that we need to talk about here is the inflation tax. And of course, inflation is regressive because as prices go up, the people who have the least amount of money in their bank accounts already uh, find life less and less affordable. And, and, and really, we have seen the Bank of Canada print so much money, much of what they're purchasing is Government of Canada debt. Yeah, and you were on the show uh, just last week. We were talking about the inflation crisis. You brought, I think, some, some very stark stats and and even some some very positive uh, remedies for it or proposed remedies. But the throne speech acknowledged inflation but didn't really talk about it. Well, you're right. It acknowledged the word inflation and that the cost of living is going up. But that was on one side, on one hand. But it's very difficult to to think that this government is actually taking inflation serious when, on the other hand, it also talks about the increasing carbon tax. So they're talking about wanting to make life more affordable for Canadians. But how can you do that when you can when you continue to soak Canadians for more money every time they go to the pumps? Now, we've already seen the Trudeau government's carbon tax increase twice during the pandemic with another increase set for next year. Um, But we have to remember by 2030, the Trudeau government wants to increase its carbon tax to about 40 cents per litre of gasoline and impose a second carbon tax, which could add another 11 cents per litre of gasoline. 
Yeah, and the carbon tax, I mean, the government is not showing any signs of, uh, pardon the pun, taking its foot off the gas pedal on this. They're, they're going full steam ahead. We know that the government has further committed to doing even more at the Glasgow summit. Uh, what are we really talking about here? I mean, how bad is this going to get? Well, you know, I don't have the crystal ball in terms of what are we all going to be paying at the gas pumps, but uh, it, it doesn't look good. And, and you know, the, the government is talking about how this is an environmental plan, but we have to push back on that because the carbon tax is not an environmental plan. It's a tax plan when if you want to look at the environment, you have to take a global approach, right? In Canada, we make up 1.5% of global emissions. So even if the Trudeau government wanted to bring all of our industries to a screeching halt, which would cause so much pain for so many Canadians, it still wouldn't do much for the global environment. Um, we All we have to do is look at British Columbia, our neighbours out there in the West. Um, they have had the highest carbon tax in Canada for so long, but emissions continue to go up and up. Yeah, I think you're very right to point that out. And one other aspect of this, and you and I have talked about this in the past that was in the throne speech, is the gun buyback. Again, the government planning to go full steam ahead on this, but not really acknowledging what you've identified as being the potential key costs here. Oh, it's it just it just has all the makings for another taxpayer boondoggle. Um, we we we've heard from the parliamentary budget officer, the government's own independent budget watchdog, that the cost just to reimburse gun owners would be could be up to seven hundred and fifty six million dollars. But Andrew, as you know, that that's not even the biggest cost of this program, because if you look at staffing and administration for this gun buyback, well, that could balloon into the billions of dollars. And so this is a, another very expensive program. But what's worse is that not only is it expensive, it's not going to improve public safety. We've heard from the people on the front lines that that's that this is not going to help. The, the Mounties Union, they came out and they said, um, this isn't going to help public safety because it's targeting law-abiding Canadians. And in fact, it could be worse because it's diverting those resources, which could be used to crack down on crime, to a gun buyback that, tar that targets law-abiding Canadians. Yeah, it, it doesn't strike me as a point that needs to be made, although I guess given the political climate in Canada, I do need to make it, that you know the people that are lining up outside the police station to bring in their legally owned guns to be turned into, you know, just smelted down and, and turned into nothingness are not the people who are using those guns in criminal acts. Of course. I mean, you're not going to get too many uh, gangsters or, or gang members that are going to be showing up to government offices with their guns, right? I mean, it's just a little bit of common sense here. Now, we, we all want Canada to be, to be a safe place, but the last thing that we need right now with the government in a sea of red ink with inflation rising is to have another wasteful government program. And just lastly here, one idea that I hope just died before the election and would never be revived again has sadly been revived, and that is the government planning to go after online content and online speech yeah i mean we we were hoping that bill c10 was was dead for good before the snap election but it looks like through the throne speech is they want to bring some form of that bill back and the canadian taxpayers federation we are one of the uh, groups there was many groups that were sounding the alarm over this and, and what we're very worried about as many have pointed out is that this could be trampling on our freedom of expression online the la and 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 we have learned through COVID-19, Andrew, shows like yours, how important it is to hold governments accountable through through online mediums. Well, how would this impact Canadians' ability to hold our politicians accountable if you have these 
unelected bureaucrats in Ottawa putting our online content under their microscope. So the last people that should be telling us how to hold our governments accountable online are the CRTC bureaucrats. So whatever this new Bill C-10 is going to look like, it's something that we're going to fight. You're very right about that. And, and I think obviously the primary objection to that is what you just noted, the attack to fundamental freedoms, to, to civil liberties. But there, there is, I would argue, a taxpayer concern as well, because anytime you're bureaucratizing speech and, and specifically online speech, you're, you're, for, you're formally requiring the government to take on this task of regulating what people say online. And I know that there will be people that weaponize any speech restrictions that come in. And all of a sudden we have to pay a legion of Canadian Human Rights Commission investigators to just review tweets all day. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a bureaucrat's dream, right? It's a bureaucrat's dream. And who pays the bill for those bureaucrats? Us taxpayers. But Andrew, it's even worse than that because you hear politicians talking about how this type of bill would make the so-called web giants pay. Well, who's going to really end up paying the tab for that? It's going to be us. It's going to be us consumers who get the bill for that, right? So so we're, we're dinged once as taxpayers paying for this uh, legion of bureaucrats, and we're going to be dinged twice as consumers w- while we see our streaming bills go up. Like I said, not too much in the way of optimism, but, <laughs> yes. but better to diagnose before you can ever dream to respond. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. You're welcome on anytime. And with that, we've got to wrap things up here. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show. We'll be back tomorrow with a spotlight on Indigenous issues in Canada. Very interesting panel you won't want to miss. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.